I'm Luke Story. I'm Christine Loria. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Check. Hi, I'm Ricky Lake. I'm Dr. Aaron Eugwin McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm James Goodlatte. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Brogan, MD. Je m'appelle Rick Safries, et c'est le podcast du gynécologue holistique. Hello, I'm Paul Check, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Enjoy. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night to everybody out there. This is episode 80 of the Holistic OBGYN podcast. I'm Nathan Riley, the Holistic OBGYN. The podcast is named after me. It's funny how that works. Hmm. Jacqueline Wolf, who's a PhD, she's a history professor at Ohio University, she wrote a couple great books. We're going to be talking about the sordid history of C-section in America. She wrote a book on the topic. And we talk about, well, first off, let me say that there's a lot of people out there doing research, right? And by the way, research isn't just using test tubes in the lab. Research could be that you spend all day reading about a specific topic until you can, be, you can probably call yourself one of the leading experts. Jacqueline Wolf is one of those people about C-sections, the history of why have the rates continued to climb. And in this episode, she floors me because she probably knows, and she, had, she acknowledges this, she probably knows more about the history of C-section than any OBGYNs who are actually doing the C-sections, any OBGYNs in the world. And uh, so we, you know, we don't go back to the ancient practices. We really kind of get started off in when did birth move from the home to the hospital? And then as problems started developing, we, we mastered this procedure called the C-section, which was previously probably one of the most dangerous procedures in the surgical world. We mastered it, and we've gotten so good at it that we find every reason in the world to do a C-section because, hey, baby's better out than in, right? Well, that language needs to go away, but it's very, very parts of the world. In Brazil, in some counties, it's like 90% of babies are born. I don't know if it's counties down there, but you get my point. Certain cities, et cetera, in, in Brazil. In the United States, we're looking at a 30 to 40% rate on average across the United States, meaning some are more, some are less. There are certain counties that have quite a few more than that. So how did we get here? What is this all about? We get into fetal heart rate monitoring. We get into the de-skilling of obstetricians. There's quite a bit to this story, and I'm so grateful that Jacqueline Wolf, Dr. Wolf, was able to spend some time with us today. A couple sponsors i got to tell you about first real quick. Fit for Birth is a, an online course program whereby you as a pregnant or postpartum woman could go and get linked up with a fit-for-birth professional who has specialized training in pregnancy and postpartum exercise and nutrition. And if you're a health coach out there and you want to deepen your toolkit, this is where it's at. Go to getfitforbirth.com slash beloved and you'll save 20% whether you're a pregnant or postpartum woman or you're a coach looking to deepen their toolkit. Go there, save 20% on their courses. I can't recommend this, this company enough. I'm so glad to have them as a sponsor because I believe fully in what they do. There's quite a bit of evidence out there that suggests that on top of everything else we do in lifestyle, that exercise is critical for fetal growth, for placental health, for the, the health of your tissues, for the ability of your pelvis to expand, the ability of your abdominus rectus muscles to come back together not, you know, in, in order to not leave a big giant gap there, um, an unresolved diastasis recti. So men and women anatomically and physiologically are different. different. The training that your, that your fitness coach has should be customized to your needs. So thankfully, 
Fit for Birth here. Go to getfitforbirth.com slash beloved. You'll save 20% on all of their offerings. This episode is also brought to you by Fullwell. Fullwell makes the one of the most heralded prenatal vitamins out there. I don't like prenatal vitamins. In fact, my wife didn't even take a prenatal vitamin, but that's because we didn't know about Fullwell. Fullwell, their capsules in their prenatal vitamin compound are so packed. If you compare them with nearly everything on the market, you're going to get a better bang for your buck with this product. I also like the fact that the owner, Ayla Barmer, who's going to be coming on the podcast, she not only developed the compounds through her, her the lens of a diet, dietitian, looking at all the research, looking at what the recommended daily allowances actually should be versus what's advertised. She created these and then oversees the entire manufacturing process. So it's quality control from beginning to end. You're going to get a great product. And they sell a men's virility compound. So remember, 40 to 50% of fertility issues in our country are due to a lack of sperm, especially modal sperm. So they've got a compound for that. They've got a Nourish Nerves Tonic, and they just released their fish oil. They basically have everything you need to ensure that you've got adequate nutrition in pregnancy. Start with diet, you know, movement, diet, go to Fit for Birth, get your exercise, get your diet in order, Get all of these other elements in order, and then this is the insurance policy to make sure that your baby, your placenta, your uterus has the adequate nutrition in order to support this birth, this pregnancy, all the way until birth and into the postpartum period. If you use code BELOVED10 at fullwellfertility.com, you'll save 10%. And lastly, but not least, we've already talked about some exercise. We've talked about diet and, and vitamin supplementation. Now, we need to talk about bioptimizers and how they can improve your sleep. So Mag Breakthrough is Bioptimizer's sort of most famous product, but I use it. I take two capsules about 30 minutes before bed with a tall glass of water. I go to bed more easily. I wake up feeling more rested and I can get right to it, not even requiring coffee usually. And I've got two little girls. I've got my wife. I've got my business. I've got my podcast. I've got my practice. I've got so many things that keep me up. And if I don't take care of my sleep hygiene, less TV, less electronics, maybe some blue light blocking glasses from Gilded by Luke's Story. There's also a link for that in my shop. I then get to bed and sometimes my mind's still racing. Two capsules of Mag Breakthrough is a breakthrough. Gets me to sleep. And I never feel, I never look back. When I wake up in the morning, I can get right to work. So go to magbreakthrough.com slash holistic OBGYN. Try out Magnesium Breakthrough for yourself, and for a limited time, they're including a bundle of goodies to help you with your gut health, including HCL, masszymes, etc. So that's for a limited time offer. Go to magbreakthrough.com slash holisticobgyn. Take advantage of this, guys. Bioptimizers is doing great work. I know the owner. I'm good friends with him, and um, I really believe in, uh, in what they do, which is why I agreed to have them come on as a sponsor. So support our sponsors. They keep the show afloat. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Jacqueline Wolf, PhD, the author, the professor, the historian. We're talking about the history of C-section in America. Dr. Jacqueline Wolf, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. I didn't realize you were a PhD because you're you're humble enough that you don't even put that in into your your bio on the book that I have. But I went onto your <clears throat> Ohio University profile and I was like, aha, she is a PhD. Well, I just assume if you're a professor, everyone assumes you're a PhD, which you're right, isn't necessarily true, but Well, given how deep you've gone with your research, I feel like any school would be would be uh, privileged to have somebody like you speaking on these topics, whether or not you went to the PhD route or not, because 
this book alone, Cesarean Section, the subtitle is An American History of Risk, Technology, and Consequence, is exactly what you think it is. And it is 183 pages, just chock full of everything that every OBGYN, I think, needs to read at some point. And I read it in my OBGYN training, which just added to my sort of disillusionment with what I was trained, being trained to do. So that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm, I can't tell you how honored I am to hear you say all that, because that's why I write this. Is you know, I feel like if I influence one student, one physician, one resident, that's all. I mean, that's a lot. And nowadays, it's really, really hard to change the fabric of the reality. I'm using air quotes on my end. The reality of how medical trainees kind of are, are educated. And you, you, know, you get on this, this train, and there's no end in sight. You just are on the train, and wherever the train takes you is what you're expected to not only know and, and keep up in your brain, but also it's supposed to be reflected in your practice. You know... I, I was invited to do grand rounds at the university at the uh, Pennsylvania hospital a number of years ago. And just to support what you just said about how, about, about training um, and a lot of residents, a lot of obstetric residents showed up and I was talking about the history of the cesarean section rate. And I was very nervous about speaking in front of obstetricians because I didn't want to make them defensive. Yeah. And there was a resident in the audience who really made the case for me. She raised her hand and she said to me, they don't teach us how to do anything but cesarean sections. When we run into trouble, that's what we're taught to do. And I really, I, I mean, I, I wrote an entire book about the reasons for the increase in cesareans, but she spoke to one of the most important reasons, what I call the de-skilling of obstetricians. Oh, de-skilling. Yeah, yeah. And, and the normalization of cesarean section. When I was pregnant it never occurred to me I might have a cesarean section. And yet young women today all assume, of course, I might have a cesarean section. Everyone knows someone who's had it. Yeah. So the normalization of cesareans and the de-skilling of obstetricians are certainly two of the ingredients for our higher cesarean section rate. Yeah. yeah. I, the the de-skilling, I think, is a is a really important word because what a lot of people think is, oh, OBGYNs, we are surgeons. We're trained, 70% of our training is in the operating room, whether it's in C-section or actually more of our time is spent with GYN surgery, hysterectomies, you know, remo removal of ovaries, services, et cetera. What I've always thought is if I can be a good enough, when I reflect on how good of a surgeon I am, it's after doing so much surgery, knowing that there are some seriously bad things that can happen and then if I can take a step backwards in the in the counseling of a of a woman in my practice about what that operating room experience might look like, knowing that there are risks. As a surgeon, I'm the one who knows the risks. I'm the one who has to fix the things when they go wrong. If I'm a great surgeon, my numbers are going to decrease in the operating room because I'm going to become expert at keeping people out of the operating room, saving that skill set for just the dire straight circumstances. But that's actually not what is happening in any OBGYN practice. We are becoming less and less apprehensive about doing surgery. And when it comes to birth, that's problematic because a lot of women come to me, even though they had healthy mom, healthy baby, that's what everybody always says, they feel like something was otherwise traumatizing about the event. They're strapped down crucifixion style. There's people chatting in the room about God knows what. The baby is not immediately delivered to your chest for you to meet your baby, for her to be or him to be close to your heart, to be able to see and smell their mother for the first time. And so we should, as surgeons, I think, be 
taking the experience that women are telling us about their C-section and considering, gosh, 40% of babies coming out through an abdominal incision is probably not where we wanted to be 100 years ago when this became a common practice. So very, very much in alignment with what you've put in this book. And I heard you do an interview a while back before I even read the book. I can't even remember where I heard the interview, but I was like, gosh, this woman gets it. And she's not even an OBGYN. You know, somebody could even could try to discourage people from reading your book. She's not an OBGYN. She doesn't know. Well, the people that do know are pushing this procedure more than anybody else. And that is really where I think we are challenged. So I'm so happy an OBGYN spoke up. You deserve a lot of praise for this work. And I'm sure you've gotten a lot of, of slack for it as well. <laughs> Well, I have to say, you know, one of the um, OB-GYNs who um, reviewed the book for me before it was published to make sure it was medically accurate, she actually, she wrote a blurb on the back of the book where she said, it read like I had been an obstetrician through the ages. Wow. Uh, it's, it's on the hardcover version. I don't think it's on the paperback version, but I was really honored by that and honored by you saying, saying yeah. a similar thing that, that it's almost as though I, I mean, I've. I've probably read more journal articles about <laughs> obstetrics than most obstetricians have just in my research. Yeah. So that yeah. certainly helped me understand the sensibility of every era of obstetrician. Let me, let me say something about your observation and your observation about the sensibility of an obstetrician as opposed to the sensibility of a gynecologist. Because one of my observations is we think of it, I mean, we it rolls off all of our tongues, obstetrics and gynecology. It seems like a very logical pairing. Um, and it wasn't until the 1930s that those two specialties were paired. And before that, they were separate. There were obstetricians and there were gynecologists. Let me point out, the only thing these two specialties have in common is they both confine their treatment solely to women. Other than that, obstetrics is a medical um, surveillance of a common physiological process. Gynecology, on the other hand, is about is about pathology. Right, right. So right. When, when you take the sensibility of the gynecologist and conjoin it with the obstetrician, this could be a problem. Oh, yeah. This could be a problem for attitudes toward obstetrics. Right. And it certainly contributed to the pathologizing of yeah. obstetrics. Yeah. And, and as a as a person who trained as an OBGYN surgeon, and granted, I don't do a surgery anymore because I was just so unhappy being in the operating room. I really didn't like surgery. And whenever the vast majority of my training was as a surgeon, I can say for sure that you, when you did the job right, you got your, your bleeding was all controlled and you did this massive surgery and you close the person up and you see them wake up in the, out of their coma in the uh, recovery room. You're like, whoa, that is some awesome things that I learned. You get a high from it. And then, oh, it's five o'clock. I need to go and be on the labor and delivery unit. You're just riding that high and everything now looks like a nail and you've got a hammer, hammer being surgery. So it's not, it's what you're saying is, is beautiful. And I, I'm actually going to, I think, steal some of that language if I may, because when I talk to people about, about the realities of OBGYN practice, you're, you are right. We treat the OB patients like they're sick because we've been seeing sick GYN patients all day. Pregnancy is not a disease and birth is not a medical procedure unless it absolutely has to based on a couple criteria that are overblown and, and over-sensationalized in our practice. So, so thank you for that. And one other thing I wanted to add, which you can steal as well as a joke, how do you hide something from an obstetrician? You publish it. So... <laughs> 
So when I'm looking through your, your list of citations, and, and I have actually used your book as, a, as a, a means of trying to find some of the literature that perhaps an OBGYN didn't have the interest or the willpower or even the, the wherewithal to go and find, I've used your 30, 40 pages of citations here um, in order to help improve my practice as well, because what we, we don't know what we don't know. So thank you for that. Let's start with, um, I don't know, turn of the century. We're talking about the, the age of the Industrial Revolution and whatnot. Let's talk about, let's, let's, let's get a historical perspective here on C-section. Let's, I'll just leave the, the floor open. T- tell us what we need to know as a, as a foundational point as to where we used to be and where we are now with C-section. Well, one of the central ironies to me is that in the, in the uh, era that I began looking at, which is um, really we're talking um, early in the 19th century, cesarean sections were viewed as the epitome of risk in obstetrics. You avoided a cesarean at all cost. You only did it if you were quite sure the mother would die mm. absolutely mm-hmm. without it. Today, the opposite is almost true. Vaginal birth is what's viewed as the risk, and a cesarean section can save you from the unknown, the, the supposed unknown of, of vaginal birth. Yeah. So I, I began with a really interesting collection. Um, the original medical statistician in the U.S., he was obsessed by cesarean sections. And, and the reason I know so much about the cesarean sections performed in the 19th century is he collected all that data and he hunted down every doctor who performed a cesarean section in that era. So we know from him more than 50% of the women who had cesarean sections in the U.S. in that era died from the cesarean section. The rate, the death rate was much higher in Europe. It was it was above 90% if you performed a cesarean section. Wow. So yeah. it was to, to be avoided at all costs. And that really remained true until the 1950s when we had two um, medical treatments we now take for granted. Because what do women die of? Not just after a cesarean section, but if they die in childbirth, they usually die of two things. They die of infection or they die of hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. We had no way to treat infection before, before, until after World War II. And we didn't have blood banking for the civilian population also until world, after World War II. Uh-huh. So the only thing that made cesareans safer was the post-World War II treatments of being able to store and transfuse blood when you needed it, and antibiotics. So the miracle of being able to to cure bacterial infections, that's what made cesarean sections safer. Mm. Um, It wasn't anything having to do with obstetric technique necessarily at all. It was with two things unrelated to obstetrics that made cesarean safer. Hmm. Yeah, World War II gave us a whole bunch of different new technologies in order uh, to to build what is uh, what I call the medical industrial complex that we've all... War usually does that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. World War II, war right. does that. War adds so much to medical treatment and yeah. people forget that connection. Yeah, right. So in, in your research in the 19th century, the 1800s, we're talking pre-Civil War time, right? Uh, in the very beginning, is that what you were describing? Yes. And I have to say, the majority of cesarean sections before the Civil War were performed on women of color, generally women who were enslaved. You know, a lot of that reason had to do with, you know, I talked about how cesarean sections generally were performed for saving the mother's life. Well, when you had a woman who was enslaved and you had a, you had a, a slave owner 
what did what were they concerned about? Losing of their investment. They were, they were con- that's exactly right. Yeah. They were concerned yeah. about saving their investment. And the investment also could be the fetus as well, mm. saving the fetus, mm. which certainly wasn't um, considered for free women, but for enslaved women, it was a consideration. And you have to you have to know that women who were free, even cesarean sections were performed at home. They were not performed in the hospital. Women called the shots. Women consented. It took, every, you know, I, I saw it not only in articles, but in women's diaries. Everyone in the room would be consulted. Uh, the neighbors who were there to help the woman, the doctor would consult everyone. Is it okay to do this? They would consult the the laboring woman. Um, when it came to enslaved women, of course, consent was only of the slave owner. The slave owner decided, yes, I want you to perform this surgery. Wow! And we didn't have anesthesia until 1847. So so many of these cesareans, certainly before the 18 late 1840s, were performed even on free women uh, without anesthesia. Yeah. There's a great TV show that just came to mind, which was uh, called The Nick. It was a show a while back. Did you ever see that as a medical historian? So many people have told me about it. I've never seen it. You know, it's. I think it's hard to find, um, but it talks about the Knickerbocker Hospital in what I think is Brooklyn. And some of the early big figureheads of, you know, the modern medicine movement in the United States in the 20th century, we're talking early, like really turn of the Industrial Revolution. And they were just experimenting with cocaine and all the derivatives as a means of anesthetizing inhalants and things like that. They couldn't even do like an appendectomy without somebody dying as well. So even in the early 19th century, these were last-ditch efforts that were oftentimes probably less fruitful than otherwise. But it's like, hey, at least we gave it a shot and because we, we were going to lose our investment anyways on these, on these you know, women who were enslaved. So... I don't think it's an understatement to say that in, early, in the early 19th century, most surgeries were not resulting in really, really great outcomes. Um, and if they did get a good outcome, that was something to learn from in order for the following decades and centuries for us to perfect this procedure. So no anesthesia, no, sterical, no uh, uh, surgical steel sterilization. Oh, and no knowledge of, of germs. No knowledge no, of the germs. No knowledge. Disease. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Right. And doctors absolutely even denied that they would be the cause of any kind of spreading of any kind of infection. That was in absolute denial about that. Right. And, and even though this, I don't remember if this is covered in your book or not, but as we started seeing the overhaul of, of midwifery care by the, the white male physicians, essentially, in the United States, the caricaturization of midwives as being dirty, uneducated, blah, 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 actually fueled the creation of what we now call the medical system. Because and yet, it, the, mater, the maternal mortality rate actually went up right. <laughs> when doctors took over and birth right. moved initially to the hospital. Right. Even, right. even uh, maternity, there was no maternity wards. Women were part of the general, women in giving birth were part of the general population. Infection rates soared. The death rate was much higher among birthing women in the 1930s than it was even in the 18th century. Wow. And wow. and we know that. We know that from midwives' logs. We know that from, from hospital logs. Yeah. So there are elements of this story that are missed when a person considers, wow, the advent of modern surgery and modern hospitals and all of this great, these great technologies that were coming around. We actually saw a crippling of women's health care in the turn of the Industrial Revolution as 
everybody who had been doing this for years, including midwives, were kind of kicked out of the birth space. It was overhauled for the purpose of providing, uh, well, really driven by a lot of financial incentive, but not that alone. Um, we, we, we took birth into the hospital and we started trying to perfect some of these techniques. But it was a long period before we could, we could even say, this is a safe procedure. So why don't we take this in chunks? I know you did that nicely in the book. We, we went 19th century. We, we uh, got through the Civil War. Had anything really changed from early to late 19, uh, 19th century? No, the, the death rate for women who had cesarean sections, it didn't, it was, it was still slightly over 50%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and really um, doctors, doctors really didn't attend births as you've alluded to. Yeah. Then. But it, but if a midwife ran in, ran into trouble and absolutely couldn't, couldn't help, she would call in a doctor, which was kind of ironic because doctors weren't even trained in medical schools for how to right. do births. Right, right. And literally, I came across one doctor who, um, I, you know, I love to tell this story. The very first birth he attended after medical school, he was called in by a midwife and he um, took one look at, at, uh, at the woman and thought that this birth would be impossible because he said there was a giant tumor blocking the birth canal. It turned out the tumor <laughs> it's yes, the baby's yes, head. Yes, was the baby's head. The baby's and head or he the baby's rump, one of the two. <laughs> he had never seen a birth before. He didn't even understand the physiology of birth. It was his first experience. And the baby was delivered without um, you know, yeah. With him cowering in a corner, apparently. So yes, there are all kinds of stories like that, and and doctors really had no experience with with birth, right? Unless right. Uh, unless there was no. In fact, that story I just told, I was wrong. A midwife did not call the doctor in, but apparently it was in a very very isolated area. There was a doctor. The doctor was called in, and he and was of no help at all. Clumsily went about trying to fix something that he didn't even understand. Right. And I have to, let me talk a little bit about midwives then. The thing that's really sparked my interest in, in looking at the history of the cesarean section rate is that my, my second book, the book just before this one, um, was about the history of obstetric anesthesia and changing views of labor pain. By then I had looked at hundreds, just endless, you know, many, many dozens of midwives logs many, many, into the thousands accounts of births. I'd looked at early accounts in um, charity hospitals, birth records. And I knew from that research that about 5% of births ran into trouble. And I'm talking about an era before we had um, any kind of knowledge of asepsis, any kind of knowledge of the germ theory of disease, decent diets, um, any kind of effective medical treatment. 5% of births ran into trouble. So my central question for my research became, how did we end up with one in three women in this country giving birth by major abdominal surgery right. in the modern era? How, how could dystopic. That be? Yeah. What, what exactly. is this? Yeah. Exactly. That became my central question. Yeah. And um, I ended up, you know, I thought this would be a kind of a narrow topic. It ended up being like going through the wrong end of a funnel where I kept finding more and more and more and more. I had to become an expert in everything from electronic fetal monitoring to malpractice rates, you know, on and on and on because it's such a complicated story. Yeah. It, uh, I'm, I'm working on a solo podcast, which is a bit of a compendium of everything that I thought was important to include about the history of medicine and midwifery. 
and really women in the healing space. And I found this great book by Jean Achterberg uh, called Woman as Healer. And I'm not sure if you referenced her work or not, but you have a lot of cross-references that you guys would have been good friends. I, I don't think she's around any longer, but uh, it talks about everything from like all the way from ancient Sumer, w- the role of women in the healing arts. And, and, and it's very Eurocentric, don't get me wrong. So there's plenty of, of world history that isn't included in this. But even just looking at medieval Europe or, or even ancient Europe or Mesopotamia, and then looking at how things are done in the United States, there is so many doors to open there that lead to 10 more doors that, that to try to simplify this in our OBGYN training, let's say, and try to highlight every aspect of how this problem came to be. When people oversimplify it, it tells me that they don't really fully understand the scope of really what happened over the past even 300 years with regards to maternity care, particularly in the United States, where we are spending way more money than anybody else. And we're just simply not getting any better outcomes. Like it's just not getting better. We're getting worse outcomes. Yeah, right. Um, right. Compared with other wealthy industrialized countries, um, we are spending astronomically more than any other wealthy industrialized country for significantly higher maternal mortality rates and significantly higher infant mortality rates, but especially maternal mortality. We're doing worse now than we were doing in 1987 in terms of maternal mortality. Um, And a lot of it can be traced to the high cesarean section rate. Yeah. Um, And I'm talking about, you know, surgical complications and um, placental complications from from previous cesareans. Um, You know, I've interviewed many obstetricians of all different generations, trained from the 1930s to the present day. And one of them trained in the 1970s. You know, I often quote her. She says, we're killing women with all these cesareans. Yeah. And yeah. um, she points to the complication of placenta accreta. Oh, yeah. That's the most serious example. Placenta accreta is when the placenta, you can explain it better than I explain it, but oh, just from it. a lay perspective, it um, the placenta adheres to the uterine wall in a very abnormal fashion. It kind of digs into it. Correct me if I'm not saying this right. And what's happening is, in many cases, it's, it's um, growing into the previous scar mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. a previous cesarean. Um, cesarean's uh, placenta accreta, and then it can't detach after the baby's born and a woman begins to hemorrhage. Yeah. Placenta accreta in the 1950s, one in 33,000 births. Mm. So uh, an obstetrician could live through three lifetimes and never see an accreta. Today, it's one in 500 births. Right. It's become so common and one in eight women with an accreta will die from the hemorrhage. Yeah. And if they don't die, they have a very, very long recovery. They're not being able to bond with their baby. They probably drained the entire blood bank at the hospital in order to keep her vital signs, her, 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 keep her from, you know, cardiovascular collapse. It will require two anesthesiologists, four surgeons. It is the most, it is the, the most dangerous surgery that you could possibly do in the hospital from the standpoint of just simple hemodynamics. And virtually 100% of women with an accreta will lose their uterus as well We should, oh, yeah. we should in order to stop the bleeding. Yeah, right. I talked to one, one obstetrician who was still sh- so shaken up by an accreta in his hospital. He, I'll ne- I'm, this, this quote is embedded in my mind. He said to me, 72 units of blood. 72. Entire, 72 units of blood, the entire hospital stopped. That's what he said about, and the woman died. We're calling the Red Cross. We're saying, like, does anybody have blood we need? I mean, it's so 
profound and, and it's not just blood you need there's all the stuff that floats around in blood all your clotting factors like you might drain the entire blood bank because somebody one day just said you know what it's easier to do a c-section and then they end up with a second and then a third c-section we know the risk of placenta previa and accretia accreta and then increta is when it grows through the wall and then percreta attaches to the bowels to the bladder you may end up re- losing part of your entire intestinal system your bladder your ureters might be all screwed up it is a very, very high-risk thing. And if, if that's on the rise, then why haven't we been able to look at this and say, holy smokes, guys, we need to stop doing C-sections. But that isn't really what has happened. Part of the problem is in, in countries with national healthcare systems, again, I'm talking about European countries, Canada, Japan, other wealthy industrialized countries, they treat a maternal death because, you know, they have a nationalized system sure. where sure. You, you spend a certain amount of money and no more than that. It's, it's, it's strictly budgeted. They treat a maternal death the way we treat an airplane crash. Sure. That is, they do such investigation about what caused it, what can prevent it. They look at the downstream effects because we're describing the downstream effects years later of one of one or two cesareans, how it can affect a woman in subsequent births. In this country, you know, a maternal death isn't treated that way. And in, in, in other wealthy countries, they share the information. They have best practices. They have in California now, um, this is one state that has begun to do that. And they have you know, everyone who's watched medical shows on TV knows what a crash cart is. Yeah. So, you know, when someone crashes, there's a crash cart. Well, they have hemorrhage carts in California now um, so that when a woman begins bleeding, they know what to do. They're trained in what to do. Everyone plays a role. They have the hemorrhage cart. Most hospitals don't have that. We don't have an across the board best practices in this country. And we don't even have any, you know, one of the reasons given for the initial increase in cesareans beginning in the mid-1960s was that we don't have any real protocol, agreed upon protocol for at what point do you perform a cesarean? Right. It really is at the whim. I mean, this is major surgery. Yeah. Most major surgeries, you have set indications for performing this surgery, not so for cesarean section. How does how do obstetricians ju- justify that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I trained at Kaiser out in Los Angeles, so we had those crash carts. We did simulation after simulation of hemorrhage protocols. And being a big referral, it was the big regional hospital. It's Kaiser, LA Medical Center, massive, high risk patients coming from every direction. So my, in my OBGYN training, I got to see quite a bit of actual pathology. Um, in addition to working with midwives in the hospital setting to see natural physiologic births. So I got to see the full scope of this. And we got very, very good at managing hemorrhage. Why would I have to be so darn good at utilizing that hemorrhage cart if hemorrhage wasn't extremely common still? And part of that is that we have a low threshold so in, in some ways, it's like, oh, I'm super well-trained at hemorrhage. Hey, C-section might be higher hemorrhage, but good. I've now trained in hemorrhage protocols. So those systems also help prevent women from dying. But we should simultaneously be asking, why on earth do we have to have these heightened hemorrhage protocols? Because so many of our women are requiring transfusions and everything else. So, so that's a double-edged sword there. We have to be hitting it from multiple angles. Um. And, and I, I feel very grateful to have trained at Kaiser. You know, we did have a 35 to 40% C-section rate. We didn't know exactly why, but we were doing our best to try to get it down. And once a person's on the path of having one or two C-sections, it's 
it's unlikely that they're going to be offered the vaginal birth after C-section in the hospital. So they end up going home, but now they're also high risk at home. And now there's delayed transfers because the midwives aren't being treated well by the system. So there's this whole culture of, in this, in this, um, this tension between home birth and hospital birth. I, I wonder if you could comment a little bit, uh, Dr. Wolf, on early in the 20th century, let's say the middle, or the, 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 the first half of the 20th century, was there any, any big changes there in care in the United States? Or are we really looking at major changes happening right after World War II? Well, it wasn't until 1939 that you literally had half of births taking place at home and half in the hospital, which is a lot later than most people think. So really before 1940, the majority of births still were taking place at home. Whether or not we you had a doctor there, whether or not you had a midwife, you know, it depended on where you lived. It depended on whether or not you were an immigrant. It depended on a lot of things. But really, most births were still taking place at home before before uh, 1940. After that, a number of things happened. One, you began to have the growth of hospital-based residencies for all specialists. So the fact that obstetrician gynecologists were being trained in the hospital also meant, hey, we need more material for them. So let's encourage women to start giving birth in the hospital. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing that happened with World War II was that the, the GI Bill, no, it wouldn't be the GI Bill because that, that was about education, but the insurance that covered, um, and it was generally men who were fighting. So the, the insurance that covered the wives they left at home who might not be pregnant, that insurance generally encouraged hospital births. There were a bunch of reasons why hospital births grew a lot around the mid-1940s. And so once we had um, hospital births, that was a huge change. Before then, um, pretty much, you know, women ran the show. Even though doctors were taking over from midwives, still it was women's homes. Women decided who could be there with them in addition to the doctor they invited in. And they pretty much called the shots. Um, in hospitals, you had all kinds of protocols that had to be followed. And suddenly women lost all control over um, over childbirth, um, mainly because of hospital protocol. Yeah, yeah. And we know how, you know, in the <clears throat> in the hospitals now, we make more and more protocols to try to minimize mortality and morbidity. And uh, those protocols oftentimes lead to, um, they sort of incentivize to uh, us to utilize interventions, and those interventions lead to more complications down the road. So it's, it's, a, it's a pickle, it's a catch-22 there, where, you know, the advertised safety of a hospital, yeah, perhaps having an operating room, I, my fastest C-section was like 37 seconds until the baby was out, like very fast, because it was a true emergency. She was hemorrhaging from the vagina, it was my last C-section ever. When I decided I'm done, I'm done with this. <laughs> but uh, you know, we're really, really good at doing surgeries, so we've got an operating room right there. We implement more protocols. Those protocols include a, a variety of policies around intervening when and where and how, and we create this. Again, you're on this this cascade of 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 interventions along the medical medical path that takes you more often than we'd like into the operating room because even though we've tried everything. Those interventions have actually created more problems. So being in the hospital was isn't hasn't necessarily also you know separate from the C-section conversation hasn't panned out to better births or better data. 
if anything, it also has has increased the amount of interventions and the amount of surgeries that we're doing in a maternity unit. We're, we're not even looking at gynecology here. We're just looking at, at birth. If you just talk about labor induction. Yeah, right. Which, you know, I mean, if you talk, what are the salient characteristics of hospital birth today? A high labor induction rate and a high cesarean section right, rate. Right. And, you know, if you want a vaginal birth, what you really want is normal labor on your side. And the chemical induction of labor is not normal labor. Mm-hmm. So the minute you the minute you do that, and you know, I should add, we don't even know yet what triggers labor. <laughs> yeah. There's some conjecture that it's something having to do with the fetus that somehow, but the fact that we don't know if you're if a woman hasn't gone into labor yet, she's not ready to right. labor. Right. So when you induce labor, yes, there are successful inductions. Absolutely. But for the most part, if a woman isn't ready to labor, you can also lead a great deal of the time to a failed induction, which then, as you kind of said before, um, let's just, she's in, she's here, let's just do a cesarean. Mm. This, the induction isn't working, let's just do a cesarean. There are all kinds of reasons why very cavalierly we have normalized the cesarean section rate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that induction rate, I just, I just looked it up because I couldn't remember, 25% uh, as of 2018, including 31% of first-time births are induced in the United States. So when we ask, why do we have a high C-section rate? Why do we have a high hemorrhage rate? Those long inductions actually wear the uterus out. The muscles don't respond as well to the endogenous oxytocin after birth and the removal of the, of the placenta. If we are inducing at 25% rate, we should not be surprised. And we're not surprised by the high C-section rate. It's almost like if we're going to get rid of our high C-section rate, we need to shift things back away from this protocol-driven, hospital-based maternity care, which is inducing women. I would guess that that number is higher than 25 ever since the ARRIVE trial. You know, I bet that we're closer to 30 to 35% now of births are being induced in the hospital because we will find every reason under the sun because the baby's better out than in. We use these platitudes without really thinking about the impacts on, on the C-section rate, et cetera. And also, you're talking about the national rate. There are, and that means the average. That's right, the, the average overall yeah. average. There are hospitals that have much higher induction rates, and hospitals that also have lower rates. Mm. So, you know, women don't realize that you really need to ask questions if if you want a vaginal birth. Find out the hospital you're going to, the doctor you use. What's their induction rate? What's their cesarean rate? Ask them. Yeah. Because the rates vary so much, even among hospitals that attract the same exact population. So for example, near New York City in a very wealthy white enclave, one hospital, this is what one study showed, had a 69% cesarean section rate, another hospital an 18% cesarean section rate. So how do you explain that when you have the same um, population, um, the same types of diagnoses, the same types of good insurance and yet those, those, that disparity in the cesarean section rate, so much of it is about hospital culture or, a, or, or an individual obstetrician sensibility. That shouldn't be the way medical decisions are made. Right, right. Can we talk about the electronic fetal monitor? Oh, I please. don't want to. Yes, I don't want to because th- this is such an important part of the cesarean section story. And if someone asked me to, to name one reason why our cesarean rate is so high, I would say electronic fetal monitoring. So until, you know, back to a little bit of this history. So 
the cesarean section rate was about 2% until the 1950s. Then we had blood transfusions and antibiotics. So cesareans became safer. We could rescue women from the most serious side effects of cesarean infection and hemorrhage. So the cesarean section rate then went up to about 4.5%. And then suddenly, in the late 1960s, the cesarean section rate exploded. (laughs) And it went from 4.5% to 25% in 1987. And then by 2009, it was 33% grew by 455% between 1965 and 1987. Okay, so those 20 years were the magical point that you found in your research. Okay, that's good to know. Exactly. Those were the, that's when it went straight up precipitously. Hmm. Uh, You know, the graph I did, I mean, it just shot up. What happened in the late 1960s? The electronic fetal monitor was introduced in hospitals and it was introduced before it was ever tested. There were there were no field trials of the electronic fetal monitor. The thought was it was it was invented by um, a Yale obstetrician, Edward Hahn. His recommendation was we should use this for high-risk women. And he had very specific indications, you know, cord prolapse, prolapse um, am, amnio, what's it called? Amnionitis? Is that a... Uh, chorioamnionitis. Chorioamnionitis. That's when there's he an infection very, in the in the bag around the baby. Very um, eclampsia, very rare, but very serious conditions. He recommended, that was his thought, that it should be used for, for that, for high-risk women. Um, and the thought was, why only high-risk women? If hmm. if it's good, if you can tell that there's a problem with the fetus and you can get the fetus out quickly, we should be using it for all women. And very quickly it was, very quickly it was. And um, we know now that in fact, Han was the one who said uh, a great quote from him. He said of his colleagues around the country, they're dropping the knife with every drop in the fetal heart rate. Um, Doctors really didn't know how to read these machines and didn't even understand what's the normal reaction of a fetus to to a contraction. You know, no one had, had, had looked at that every single second of a labor. In the past, you'd used um, Mm. a fetal stethoscope. Fetoscope. A fetoscope, exactly right. You would check about every 30 minutes on the the fetal heart rate. Um, The heart rate would sound good. Um, I talked to some old, you know, obstetricians trained in the 40s and 50s who said, oh, you know, maybe twice in my practice, I performed a C-section based on bad heart tones using the fetoscope. But maybe two, my entire, you know, decades of practice. But with the electronic fetal monitor, you were seeing all kinds of scary dips in the fetal heart rate. And let me um, let me tell you what um, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has written about the electronic fetal monitor. This is the main professional organization of obstetricians. They say the electronic fetal monitor is highly sensitive, but with low specificity, meaning it does a good job of indicating when a fetus is doing well, but a very poor job of indicating when a fetus is compromised. And and we also know there was such alarm at the spike in cesarean sections um, in the 1970s that a lot of hospitals, and I interviewed so many doctors who described this, they began checking the... um, the um the umbilical cord blood to see if the fetus right. 
um, born by cesarean section really had been compromised. No, they were absolutely fine. There was no reason for the cesarean section. And they began to realize, recognize that they really weren't using the electronic fetal monitor properly. And we know now um, they started even before fax machines, which I know now are never used anymore, so outdated. But even before fax machines, they be, they set up this thing with Xerox Corporation to send their fetal monitor strip to distant sites where experts in the electronic fetal monitor mm. would read the strip and decide whether or not a cesarean section would be performed. People wow. like Edward Hahn, who had invented the monitor, would be waiting at these distant sites. And even the top level experts in reading these strips only got it right 68% of the time um, in terms of whether or not the fetus was truly in distress. The electronic fetal monitor we know now. Okay, so it was introduced in 69. It wasn't until 1976, and by then, every single hospital in the country that had an obstetric residency program had adopted the monitor. So uh, in 1976, they ran the first randomized controlled trials using the monitor. They would randomize women to either be monitored by the monitor throughout labor or use the old method with with the fetoscope, listen periodically to the fetal heart rate. They discovered that the electronic fetal monitor led to no better outcomes, no better APGAR scores, no better um, rates of neurological disability, no fewer stillbirths, no fewer admissions to the neonatal intensive care unit. The only thing that the electronic fetal monitor did was increase the cesarean section rate. Right, right. And I should add, the cesarean section, increasing the rate was thought... And using electronic fetal monitor was the 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 thought was we are going to wipe out cerebral palsy. That's what Edward Hahn thought. That's what obstetricians thought. We have not decreased the rates of cerebral palsy in this country a smidgen, not <laughs> even a smidgen, since we've increased cesarean sections and we've universalized the electronic fetal monitor. The only thing we've done is increase the cesarean C-section section rate. rate. I have so much to say about this. Um, let me start by saying that anytime we introduce a new technology, let, let's let's not even talk about medical technology. Somebody dis- you know describes that when an apple falls, it it falls from the tree and it hits the ground. That was a pretty interesting observation, Mister Newton, Doctor Newton, whatever. If he had gone a mi- hundred miles down the road and found that that wasn't true, that would not have become a universal law. In other words, you could validate that observation across anywhere on the planet Earth, and it became a universal law, the law of gravity. In medicine, we should be able to introduce something with the hypothetical mechanism of action and proposed outcome. We should be able to generalize that technology to anybody, and that should be done before we introduce it as a major intervention in the childbirth process. But what you just described is effectively, that there was no validation of this technology. And even though it was proposed, and maybe even theoretically could produce these good outcomes, it never has, and it never will. But we've become so married to this idea that by monitoring every moment while a baby is in the uterus and a woman is going through childbirth, if we can monitor every beat, it's not really every beat, but it's every, a composite 
every second or so you get a, an average of where that baby's, you know, how fast that baby's heart rate is going. If we're going to implement this technology, use it universally, we would expect to see a, a change. We haven't seen that change, but we've become so married to this technology through medical malpractice, etc., that we don't really know what to do. So, so we would have to go back to training residents on how to do intermittent auscultation with either a fetoscope or a Doppler, which is what midwives do at home. And I will say that when they've compared intermittent auscultation with a Doppler or otherwise directly to this, that intermittent auscultation performs better. And it's way more comfortable and less scary with less intervention for the woman giving birth. So why aren't we looking at this? Like, what do you think are the cultural barriers to bucking this trend? Because I, I have more I can say about it, but I, I want to pause there. You know, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has said repeatedly in their practice bulletins exactly what you just said, that using in, lo in low-risk births, doing intermittent auscultation with, with, a, with a fetoscope is just as effective, if not more so, than um, the electronic fetal monitor. Yeah. So certainly the professional organization has given obstetricians permission. <laughs> but, you know, I've talked to enough recently trained obstetricians who really distrust their own instincts. They're not trained in the hands, literal hands-on care that... Um, obstetricians were in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s who could just feel the belly and, of course, instantly tell, is this baby presenting head down? Are they presenting butt first? Are they presenting foot first? Right. Nowadays, women have an ultrasound mm -hmm. so the doctor can see how they're presenting. Doctors don't, they're not trained in these hand-on, hand. that's what I meant by the de-skilling of obstetricians. Yeah. They need the machines. And how scary for, you know, I've, I've, seen enough obstetricians being trained. And I know a lot, a big part of their training is learning how to read the fetal monitor strips. Yeah. And, and they sit in, um, in large urban hospitals, there'll be monitor rooms where they can watch 40 women at once, yeah. literally on the screen, rather than learning about labor at women's bedsides. They don't go to women's bedsides. They look at the screen to see what's going on. So when you're trained in the machinery and you're not trained in how to feel what you need to feel and how to recognize the different emotional signs of labor, all the things that midwives are trained to do, you rely on the machines. Yeah. Um, and to take away those machines, it would, the thing is, it would take such a massive public health education campaign, because even women would be terrified to not have their bodies hooked up to this machine, thinking that their baby might die if the heart rate isn't monitored constantly. It would take a massive re-education of both patients and physicians to get rid of that equipment right now. Well, even if we were to keep it, let, let's, let's, play, uh, let's play devil's advocate a little bit. Even if we were to keep it, like you said about the sensitivity and specificity, is that the bad things are not, are not specific to bad outcomes. The good things are reassuring. So anybody out there, I've got a lot of residents and whatnot that are listening. I had a, a lecture the very first day of my intern year. That's the first year of your four years of hard residency training in OBGYN. It was a, a, a physician named Milo Chavira. I'm sure he doesn't mind me mentioning his name because he's been a mentor of mine for years. He gave us, he was an MFM, which is the high-risk OBs. 
he gave a, a lecture to the incoming interns, me and my, my four colleagues, on fetal heart rate tracing and the physiology of, of, what you're, of, of these patterns that are developing, right? And what he taught us was, okay, oxygen goes into the mouth, you know, you, or into the lungs, the mom breathes it in, it goes down the umbilical vein, goes, it's oxygenated, goes to the baby, the baby does whatever it will with it, or it actually goes to the placenta, then to the baby, then it goes back unoxygenated to the placenta, and then goes back into mom's circulation to be breathed out. So anywhere along that path, we might get a disruption in oxygen being delivered to the baby. Now, the key thing that he taught me was, if we're looking at this fetal heart rate tracing and we haven't validated it based on what you said, the sensitivity specificity, are there things on there that instead of us being scared and dropping the knife like Dr. Han mentioned, that would actually provide reassurance? Could we reframe the role of the electronic fetal heart rate monitor? In other words, could we use this to be reassured that everything's okay, at least reasonably okay, versus as a tool to tell us when we need to take them to the operating room. And I really like that, that, that line of thinking, because when you're looking at the heart rate tracing, you've mentioned these drops, these decelerations. That is what all OBGYN residents are looking for when they're looking at those 40 tracings. What if instead we focused on where are the, what are the signs of that tracing that actually are reassuring and that tell us, hey, even if there are drops, we're not worried. And that would be the accelerations, the variability. Heart rate variability is not a new thing. Um, and, and fetal heart rate tracing is really dependent on the variability. The drops, maybe they're bad, maybe they're not. We've all gone to the operating room with a woman who we thought had a horrible tracing, and the baby's got APGARs of 9 and 8 and 9. We've also taken people to the operating room where they had an okay-looking tracing without the drops, and the baby is in critical condition afterwards. So that statistic, we all know that statistic, but we're taught to only look for the bad things. So if you're listening out there, if you see moderate variability, you know what it means as, as well as I do, and especially if there are accelerations, whether or not there are decelerations, that baby is fine. And we need to be able to sit on our hands and focus on the good things versus the fear of, of, of whatever is going to happen to us if we don't rush to the operating room as soon as we start to see those drops. So I just wanted to throw that in there, that there is a way to educate people about these tracings, but it goes back to the original intention of the tracings. And really what has been demonstrated through some of these trials, um, and like you said, a lot of OBs don't agree, good or bad, but there are OBs out there, one in particular that I won't mention by name, who is in courtrooms on a daily basis charging a lot of money to testify against OBGYNs who haven't acted on that one little thing that, they, that he saw that only he can see with his magic eye that told him that that baby was in distress. And that is completely ludicrous, but we know that that's happening in California. So we become so afraid that we, instead of looking at those reassuring factors, we just look at the bad. And the good news about not having a person on a continuous fetal heart rate tracing is you generally don't see the bad. You only can detect the good with intermittent auscultation, which is why it, you know, that method leads to less C-section, less intervention, and overall better outcomes. And, and let me add that when you monitor, you know, the other problem is when you mo when you monitor an entire low risk population, you're gonna you're gonna have a, a ton of false positives. Right. Right. I mean that that that's an, that's another problem is when you universalize the use of the monitor, you're gonna have false positives all yeah. over the place. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as long as you mentioned um, uh, an obstetrician who testifies against other obstetricians in court. Let's talk about malpractice for yeah, a minute. Yeah, let's because do it. That, of course, is always, you know, doctors will always sit, throw up their hands and say, but 
we have to do cesarean sections. We have to practice defensive medicine because our malpractice rates are through the roof. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about the history of malpractice insurance in obstetrics. This is amazing. This is like everything I wanted today. Thank you. <laughs> in, in the 1980s, so, so remember I said that the cesarean section rate shot up from the late 1960s until 1987, 455%, from 4.5% of births to 25% of births. It went straight up, largely having to do with electronic fetal monitoring. It wasn't until that point in the mid-1980s that you saw anyone suing an obstetrician for failure to perform a cesarean section. That was a legal strategy that was invented by trial lawyers, um, specifically John Edwards, who made his fortune. He was the former senator from North Carolina. He ran for vice president on the same ticket as John Kerry, if anyone remembers that. Um, he made his fortune as a, as a malpractice attorney suing obstetricians. And he was the one who invented the idea of suing obstetricians for so-called failure to perform a cesarean section. Mm. Before then, the only lawsuits having anything at all to do with cesarean sections were lawsuits um, because the cesarean section had gone wrong because a woman had been damaged hmm. um, by the cesarean section. That's what the lawsuit was about. It was about the cesarean section that shouldn't have been performed, not the one that should have been performed. Yeah. So this was really an invention made possible. That legal strategy was made possible by the fetal monitor. Because you alluded to suddenly doctors, suddenly a, a, a doctor uh, or a lawyer could point to a squiggle on a page and say, right there, that little dot is where the baby was damaged. How do you argue against that? Yeah. And usually it was because the child had cerebral palsy. Most of these very high um, settlements are about cerebral palsy, which have nothing to do with a birth accident. We know now apparent cerebral palsy, we think, develops either because of severe prematurity or early on in fetal development, nothing to do with a birth accident. Right. And and yet um, it's a very emotional pull for juries to see a very damaged child sitting at the defense table, or I'm sorry, sitting at the prosecuting table. And um, large awards are given because supposedly we have this proof, this this monitor that recorded the entire labor, right. and you can point to a squiggle on a page. So the irony to all this is not only electronic, electronic fetal monitors, very bad for mothers, very bad for babies, because too many cesareans, unnecessary surgery is bad for everyone, the doctor, but especially the patients, the two patients, the mother and the baby. Um, but it's also bad for doctors professionally, yeah, because one of the reasons um, we have that we have these high um, malpractice claims now is because of the fetal monitor. Yeah. So we, you know, doctors really need to educate their patients, and um, doctors should be at the forefront of trying to use fetal monitors very, very carefully. Well, again, like you said, <clears throat> back to the de-skilling of physicians. We're we're pretty smart people. We've done more education than. Vastly everybody, you know, apart from PhDs and, and other specialties, but most of the population is not giving 10 to 20 years of their life to their education, not to mention $500,000 in med school debt, speaking from somebody I know very well, I won't mention any names, me, <laughs> 
you know, you invest all that time into putting so much incredibly valuable information into your head, a compendium of knowledge that has required a thousand years of understanding the anatomy and physiology of the human, of the human body. And now your entire knowledge base is reduced to a little computer screen running a, t- a computer program that hasn't been validated and it's leading to worse outcomes for your patients. So I'm not saying that to make anybody feel bad. What I'm saying is, yes, it's confronting to hear this if you're an OBGYN. And if you think that you're as good as, as you claim to be, why not push back a little bit on this and say, I'm the one with the training. I understand the physiology better than any of the people in the courtroom, any of the people legislating on my behalf, or any of the people running the business of medicine that I'm practicing in. Let me put my feet down and say, hold on, I appreciate it, but I'm good over here because I understand that getting to know this person, getting to know their values, having my hands on the belly, being with them at bedside is really where it's at as a, as a doctor. Like that's really the paradigm shift that I'd like to see. And that I'm, that's the whole purpose of my podcast is for OBGYN residents, many of whom reach out to me on a daily basis and are like, thank you for this because it's what I've been thinking and feeling. You guys need to just consider what is at stake if you don't push back? Who's going to push back against this? If every physician out there said, we hear you, we want to see a change, stuff is going to change. But if you keep practicing out of a place of fear, then nothing will ever change and it will continue going in this way and you'll keep doing the automated robotic thing that you didn't train to do. That's the culture of medicine telling you that's what we expect you to do. And so that's my soapbox moment. (laughs) I would go so far as to say that the more obstetricians learn to rely on machines, the less and less they learned about labor. That's right. Um, I I was telling um, someone, I interviewed her when she was doing her residency. So this was probably seven, eight years ago. And um, I described for her how doctors learned about labor in the 1940s. I said they sat by women's bedsides and they observed from the moment the woman came in until she gave birth. She said to me, I can't even imagine doing such yeah. a thing. Yeah. So, you know, I, I learned from her that doctors go, you know, here I was telling the story about how doctors in the 19th century learned nothing about birth in medical school. Now we have trained residents in obstetrics who have never sat and observed labor from beginning to end. You know, how? why isn't that a scandal? Yeah, yeah. Because there are, you know, midwives can tell, they talk about emotional signposts. They can tell how far a woman is dilated just by the way a woman is behaving. Doesn't even have to check her cervix. Yeah. Yeah. So why can't obstetricians know that? Yeah. Well, I was fortunate enough to to recognize some of these in, inconsistencies or inadequacies, whatever you want to call it, early on. And I wanted to be better. I'm, I'm not saying this to toot my own horn, but I was confronted with the same thing that OBGYN resident was that you interviewed. And it was like, well, how on earth am I going to do that? I'm so busy doing these other things. The way that you do that and the way that I did it was I sought out people who do home birth. I sought out midwives. And we did have some midwives that worked with us on the unit, which gave us the introduction to physiologic birth, but it was still in a hospital setting. But when you experience a home birth, and we had a, our, our baby at home 50 feet from here about seven months ago. And when you can be there from the start of labor through the birth of this baby, you realize that all of that technology not only does it not give you the full experience of childbirth, 
but it disconnects you from actually all of the knowledge. There's no way to apply that knowledge if you're relying entirely on this. You're, you're, you're sort of externalizing your knowledge base to a computer algorithm on a screen or any of the other technologies that we use in hospitals. So find a midwife, find a home birth doc. Stu Fishbein out in California took me to a couple births. And <clears throat> when, you, when you can understand that the art of midwifery is actually the art of doing very, very little unless it's absolutely necessary. And the vast majority of what they do is they hold space and they hold hands and they rub the back and they really get to know what are you feeling if you sit through that time and time again, you start to realize, oh, there's a transition here. I am seeing that happen. I don't even need to have my hand where it doesn't belong. You are transitioning to the second stage, period. And I've seen it with my wife on two occasions. The first was a hospital birth, but we were in the bathtub. And I didn't expect it to go this quickly, but we were went, went from walking to me drawing her a bath upstairs thinking this could be a three days of hell for all we know. And those are from my, those are my words. I don't know if she would use those words, but I was preparing for everything. And we got into the bathtub and about 20 minutes into that bath, she was rocking her hips back and forth and her eyes were open and she was not there anymore. She was, con she was transforming in front of me. And I said, honey, maybe I should do like a very gentle exam. And I went in maybe one centimeter and felt a head in the vagina. And I was like, baby, I'm going to get the car ready. Maybe you should step out. Let's dry off. And then I went scrambling around to find all the stuff we needed for the hospital. But she made it to 10 centimeters and you could see it. But you would only see that if you were actually sitting with a woman and caring for her through the whole process, not jumping in and cutting her belly open just because you saw a drop in the heart rate. That's not obstetrics. That's not skilled medicine. That is technician work at best. And I will, that's a hill I will die on. You, you described that beautifully. Thank you. So, so can I, can I talk about some solutions to all, to what we've been talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, totally. We're, uh, yes. we're, oh, we're at an hour already. Oh my God. Yes. I could talk to you for days. Yeah. Let, let's talk about some of the solutions and then let's, let's also tell people how they can find you if they want to, you know, buddy up with you like I have. <laughs> well, let, let me, um. Uh, l let me say we've already uh, talked about one solution, and that is using electronic fetal monitors far more judiciously, Yes, which is going to take a whole lot of re-education of a whole lot of people. But I think that it's worth a national discussion. Yeah. We have changed health practices before. We can do this. But let me also, you know, we, we've talked about midwives quite a bit. And one of the things I learned from all the oral histories I've, I've done with doctors is the obstetricians who did residencies in hospitals that also had midwifery programs practiced obstetrics very differently from doctors who were in did residencies in hospitals that did not have midwifery programs. One of the tragedies of today is that most midwifery programs have closed in hospitals, um, again, because of this malpractice insurance problem. Midwives spend more time with patients, and yet... Um, Hospitals have to pay as much, for, and they see fewer patients during the day because they spend more time with them, yet hospitals spend as much for their malpractice insurance as they do for obstetricians, and hence they've closed down a lot of the midwifery programs. Mm. I think, however, that just like you would never have a residency program for an obstetrician um, without, obviously, obstetricians there to train them, every residency program should also have midwives on their faculty. Yeah. Because I, I think that that should be an absolute requirement that that everyone fights for. Yeah. Um, because you get a different sensibility. Midwives are the ones who are the experts in vaginal birth. 
Obstetricians generally are not. So if you want to encourage more vaginal births, you should have midwives involved in the training of obstetricians. That's right. That would be one thing to talk about. I think obstetricians professional organizations need to be very clear that unnecessary cesareans, medically unnecessary cesareans are unethical. So-called CDMR, cesarean delivery by maternal request, is something that should be denied on its face. Um, Now, that really is a very, very small percentage of our cesareans. But why should major surgery, you know, people don't go to surgeons to say, hey, just in case, would do you mind removing my, my appendix? No, surgery carries with it risks. You don't have a, a surgery on a request. It must be medically necessary. The criteria for medically necessary cesareans should be very explicit and agreed on by the profession. This shouldn't be guesswork. This shouldn't be based on individual experience. It should be based on collective experience. Medical procedures that are known to increase cesareans, whether it's the use of the electronic fetal monitor or labor induction, should only be used for medical indication, not universally. And certainly medical induction, you know, much more on request are medical inductions. You know, we induce all the time for social reasons as opposed to medical reasons. If you want a vaginal birth, you want normal labor on your side. I said that before. I'll repeat it again. Um, Even labor inductions shouldn't be permitted unless there's a medical reason for them. I would also suggest that hospital cesarean section rates should be made public so that women can make fully informed choices about where they give birth and who they give birth with. Even doctors' cesarean rates should be listed um, or available on request. Um, I do know the hospitals in the 1970s that were trying to bring their rates down. One of the things that brought their rates down was listing, not for the public, but for other doctors, what everyone's cesarean section rate was. And boy, that made doctors scramble to lower their cesarean section rate. They didn't want to be embarrassed. In front of their colleagues. <laughs> You're the one with the 80% rate. Everybody's going to look at you at lunch like, what the hell, man? What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. And I should also add the culture needs to change. I heard, let me just share one last story. I, again, I was speaking in front of a, a group of physicians and an obstetrician shared with me the culture of his hospital. He said that um, obstetric residents were all on 12-hour shifts. Yeah. And it was considered rude if a woman had been in labor for an entire shift to pass that woman on to the next shift. So you would begin to talk to that woman about, hey, you know, this is taking too long. You know, maybe we should think about doing a cesarean section. And it wasn't for the woman. It was really part of the hospital culture that you didn't do that to the next shift of obstetric residents. And he said that certainly increased their cesarean section rate. And yet every obstetric journal you read from the 19th century all say labor takes time especially for a first-time mother, give her more time. If she's doing well otherwise, give her more time. And, you know, I'm I'm reading journal articles today that are beginning to say that again. And and what doctors don't realize is they're writing 19th century advice in 21st century medical journals. Now, that's how far we've come from losing the basic knowledge of how obstetrics is safely practiced. 
I want to get in the weeds there with that, just with this topic, just a little bit, because when I was in training, you know, there, there's a couple techniques that can help help with what we call like arrest disorders, arrest of dilation, arrest of descent, etc. And there was a great article called um, "Preventing Safely Preventing the Primary C-Section" or something like that. It was looking at women who had in their first pregnancy, their first childbirth, they had a C-section. It was written by a woman named Kathy Spong, who's an MD and OBGYN. And it became one of those papers I carried in my accordion file in order to to defend myself for not intervening in birth, if you can believe that. And uh, I got a, a lot of flack for this, but it was like, let me see if I could get my C-section rate under 5% while I'm a resident from start to finish. And generally, you're not seeing it start to finish, but for for those patients that I feel like I really had, a, you know, I really cared for them, I, I wanted to do that and I did it. But it took a lot of patience with reading what the literature said from obstetricians that trained probably in the 40s and 50s. And there was everything from not only the, so what you were describing with the, it takes a long time in that first part of pregnancy or in birth, especially for those, for the first, for your, for your first pregnancy, it required actually actively encouraging women to stay at home, even if their waters opened up, just like stay, just wait till labor happens. Because once you come in here, we put you on these curves, the labor curves, which I know you know about, but the Friedman curve said, oh, you know, every, anything after like, I don't know, you should be changing your, your cervix 1.2 centimeters per hour after a certain point. It was that type of nonsense that if you weren't changing fast enough, you'd get this diagnosis of protracted first stage or whatever else. And it would tell us that you're not fitting into the average expect, expected cervical change rate or, or window for the first or second stage of labor. And of course, that's crap. Because we know that latent phase, that early part for any woman listening, couldn't take days. Like you might be in early labor until you get to four to six centimeters. You might be there for days. I hope that's not the case for you. For my wife, it was six hours from start to finish. The second one, two hours start to finish. So she, maybe you could say she was lucky. But the reality is that in the hospital, we expect you to stay on this curve. And if you don't, then we start intervening. And that's when we get into trouble down the road. The second thing I wanted to add is that oftentimes the pushing phase can be very, very long because the baby's facing the wrong direction. For example, the head should be facing the bladder, but the back of the head might be facing the floor, the sacrum. When that happens, you can actually rotate the baby gently with your hand and the baby will go. The baby wants to get out of there. The baby's trying, but like, oh, I got stuck under the fence. So this manual rotation procedure was something that I had my hand slapped for because the doctors that were attending me weren't experienced with that. So I had to go into the literature to look for that. But with a little practice and even an ultrasound, if you prefer, you can get the baby to rotate the head so that the baby's not looking up at the, at the ceiling, but rather down to the floor. So you go from OP to OA, and now the baby slides out. Another thing is operative vaginal delivery. It should be very judicious, but if you need a little facilitation with the with a vacuum, if you place it correctly or forceps, I don't use those, but um, you could avoid a C-section. And maybe the risk of the vacuum or the or the forceps is is higher than the benefit of C-section in your practice because you're not experienced with it. But these are all these like little tricks. Not to mention hydration, letting a woman eat during this long process so her, so that she's not running a marathon for three days without any calories, sugars, electrolytes, etc. These are all of the elements of basic medical care that if we want this to be a real profession and continue to be a profession, we need to consider why is the C-section rate so high and is there anything I could, do, could have done in the first or second stage to avoid, have avoided the operating room altogether? 
And there are people out there, I, I have had great mentors who I've learned from, who have helped me keep that C-section rate well below 10% and oftentimes below 5%. And, um, and it's, 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 it's women who stay home as long as possible, even if their water's open. They come in in full-blown labor, and then a baby just comes out. They're not scared. Their cortisol's not streaming through their blood. They're women who have taken care of themselves as well before, during, and after any pregnancy. And then it requires us to have a judicious use of any intervention. I always say the, the burden of proof lies to that person who wants to deviate from nature. And if we can use those and some of these other tools, like only looking at the monitor for certain things or using some manual rotation or whatever, getting a woman in different positions, maybe counseling about the real ben- you know, risks and benefits of epidural, those are all a part of the practice of obstetrics. And that is the whole package that I would love to be seen you know, our residents training with, and maybe we give 50% of that training to the midwives who can teach us about truly natural physiologic birth. Thank you. You, you, you have, you know, before I was talking about the, the institutional remedies to this, but you've listed, you know, what women can do for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, you know, choose your provider very carefully and question them. If you want if you want to avoid a cesarean, ask them about their practices and their cesarean section rate. And um, don't let people induce labor or any kind of intervention unless, unless they can explain why it's medically necessary. Right. And just as you said, labor as long as you possibly can at home. Um, I, I said that to a, a, um, a daughter of a very good friend of mine, and she was afraid to labor too long at home. So she, but she listened to me partly. She and her husband labored in the hospital parking lot in their car. She wanted to be, she wanted to be close to the hospital. Um, so she was in the hospital parking lot, and she didn't go in until she was way, well, well, well into labor. Yeah, and it worked really well for her. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jacqueline, I, you know, we could, we could spin our wheels all day about this. I, I feel so grateful to have met you. Um, I really want to acknowledge just how impactful this book could be if every OBGYN resident on their first day could just read this. I think it would be so helpful. And if there's some way that I can support you and maybe getting that as a part of the curriculum in every residency training program here and across the world, I would do so. Um, thank you so much for spending some time with me. Well, you have so honored me. And believe me, if I were still um, giving birth and, and knew where you practiced, I, I don't even know where you are. I would <laughs> I would move there so you could be my doctor. This is, oh, that is no, very, I, I, very yeah, I'm really impressed. Can I put in a plug for my own podcast? Oh, I, I, that, you, you have plenty of opportunity to tell everybody where they can get your books. Um, you've got more than just this book. And I am excited to read yeah. the others, your website, I've, I've everything. Actually, yeah, I've actually written three books, and you can get them through on Amazon. All three are on Amazon, and the, and the last two are in paperback, so they're reasonably reasonably priced. One is on the history of breastfeeding practices in the U.S., which was my originally my dissertation topic. The second one I mentioned is a history of obstetric anesthesia and changing views of labor pain over the last two hundred years. Oh my gosh! And this third this third book is a um, history of the cesarean section rate in the United States. Yeah. Um, I also do a podcast with my local uh, national public radio station. Um, it is called Lifespan Stories of Illness, Accident, and Recovery. And it's very personal stories about experiences with the healthcare system. You know, the, the whole range of stories. Uh, certainly there's stories about birth in there and breastfeeding, but also accidents and decisions about, you know, when you when you uh, are tested, have, have prenatal testing and find out your baby tests positive for Down syndrome. Uh, really, that's one of my 
podcasts I'm proudest of, um, uh, uh, people talking about recovery from alcoholism, burn, burn patients, um, endless stories that teach you a lot about the healthcare system. That's amazing. I, we, we will definitely link everything in the show description, Jacqueline. If there's any way I can be supportive to you or um, whatever, please let me know because uh, you're really a great resource. So thank you so much for spending some time with, with us today. I, I, I thank you so much. You're very welcome. And, and thank you so much for inviting me. Okay, take care. You too. Alza la frente en alto y camina bien. Alza la frente en alto. Alza la frente en alto y camina. Alza la frente en alto. Alza la frente en alto y camina bien. Alza la frente en alto. Thank you so much for tuning in, y'all. If you want to check out Dr. Wolf's work, I highly recommend all three of her books. Her first is titled Cesarean Section, An American History of Risk, Technology, and Consequence. She also has a book on anesthesia, including epidural and intrathecal anesthesias, Deliver Me from Pain, Anesthesia, and Birth in America. And lastly, Don't Kill Your Baby, Public Health and the Decline of Breastfeeding in the 19th and 20th Centuries. All phrases we've heard before. Deliver me from pain, don't kill your baby. And from the C-section standpoint, you don't want your baby to die, right? Let's, let's just go to the operating room. She's an incredible author, a prolific researcher, and I hope you can support her work. She's doing some amazing things out here. It's a huge pleasure, Jacqueline, to have you on the show. Um, our sponsors today, make sure you support them. Get your exercise needs met in pregnancy and postpartum by going to getfitforbirth.com slash beloved. You'll save 10%, sorry, 20% on Fit for Birth services. That's open to pregnant and postpartum women and coaches that want to deepen their toolkit. Go to fullwellfertility.com, use code BELOVED10 and save on the best prenatal vitamins, men's virility vitamins, uh, nerve tonics to calm and ease the mind, as well as their fish oil. And then lastly, Bioptimizers has a special offer for uh, listeners of the Holistic OBGYN podcast. Go to magbreakthrough.com slash holistic OBGYN. Magnesium breakthrough, seven uh, distinct types of magnesium helps you get your most restful sleep. And they're throwing in a bundle of goodies to help with digestion, gut health, et cetera, including their HCL and Mathzymes compounds. Can't recommend these guys enough. Thank you for supporting them. My name is Nathan Riley. I'm the host. I've got a practice. It's called Beloved Holistics PCA. If you join my PCA, we can... We can start chatting about pregnancy and fertility and endometriosis and PCOS and the pros and cons of birth control, menopause, all kinds of things. That's my practice. Join the PCA. It's a $43 annual donation, and then you're in. You can book consults with me, buy packages of time, etc. I always send lots of free goodies to people who are, who are my clients, too, because I've got so many great companies like the three I just mentioned who send me samples and whatnot. So I reserve those for my paying clients. And yeah, and then I also have my collaborator program. If you're a health coach out there and midwife, et cetera, you join my collaborator program and you can talk to me about clients all day, every day if you need it in order to make sure that your clients have their optimal, have optimal care. So you can find all of that at belovedholistics.com. If you're liking the show, please go to iTunes and just take five seconds to leave me a five-star review. I don't think it's much to ask, but I also realize you're all busy. I just always really appreciate it when I see a new five-star rating pop up because I know that the... The iTunes algorithms really only seem to care about that. But if you're liking the show, please take take some time. I can be found also on Instagram at Nathan Riley OBGYN. And I think that's it. Thank you for tuning into my conversation with Jacqueline Wolf. Go buy her books. I will see you all next time on the Holistic OBGYN podcast where I'm talking to another Austonian friend, Alex Rybczynski, the one and only 
longtime Czech practitioner. Uh, we're talking about some neurosomatic therapy and, f- and pelvic function, which is one you will not want to miss. So tune in. I will talk to you all soon. I love you. Alza la frente en alto y camina bien. Alza la frente en alto. Alza la frente en alto y camina.